Kitty Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacy LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Peter Wolf. Peter is a research and policy analyst for Best Friends Animal Society, one of the largest animal welfare organizations in the United States, and a leader in the development and operation of community cat programs. Peter's role involves the analysis of science and public policy related to community cat issues, a topic he's been researching and writing about since 2010 through his blog, Vox Felina. Peter, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me back. Yeah, yeah, it's great to catch up with you again and find out what you've been up to the last couple of years. For folks that aren't aware, Peter was a past guest on the show. You can always go to communitycatspodcast.com and go in the search bar and just put in Peter or Peter Wolf. And the show we did back in September of 2016 will come up. So you can find out a lot about Peter's background there, some of his past. But today, I'd like to talk about a newly released paper that Peter and Dan Spihar have put out. And um, I'm just going to sort of hand the mic over to you, Peter, and you can share what you discovered through the process of this article. Thank you. I should mention first, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dan has actually been on the podcast before. Is that correct? Yes, Dan has been a guest and he was instrumental working with you on the research around our Newburyport project. Absolutely. And he's, uh, Dan has once again taken the lead on this. I I like to tell people that there's a reason his name is listed first on the paper and it's (laughs) not because they're in alphabetical order. Dan was responsible for the compilation and analysis that was then published in this article. It's in the uh, online peer-reviewed journal, Frontiers in Veterinary Science, part of actually a whole collection of articles on this topic for a special issue of the journal. And what we pulled together for this was a very large data set, nearly 73,000 cats in total, And they were from six, what we at Best Friends call CCPs or community cat programs. And these are, again, large scale, three year programs that integrate return to field with a targeted trap neuter return program. And so just by way of explanation for any listeners who might not be familiar with return to field or maybe know it by another name, it's sometimes called shelter neuter return or SNR. Um, I sometimes refer to it as shelter-based TNR. The key distinction being how does one come across the cat prior to doing the sterilization, vaccination, and return. Traditional TNR, of course, would be more of a community-based, maybe it's a, a group operating largely for the purpose of TNR, or it could just be a resident who is taking advantage of local resources and taking care of a couple, three cats, you know, in the immediate vicinity. A return to field, by contrast, it's the same essential process in that it's trap new to return. The difference is these are cats who come into the shelter, either by a resident or by an animal control officer. And again, if they're eligible, um, meaning in the broadest terms, neither too young nor too old, not declawed, generally good health, 
and lacking owner identification, then again, sterilize, vaccinate, put right back where you got them. And what our CCPs do, and and Brian Cordes, who again, I believe has been a a guest on your show, Mm -hmm. um, when Brian was at PetSmart Charities, he really honed in on the importance of integrating return to field and targeted TNR. And we've come to call that the, it's a rather clunky term, but we call it the red flag cat model. And the premise there is really pretty straightforward. A cat comes into the shelter again, brought in by a resident or maybe an animal control officer. And the assumption is this cat has family and friends nearby. And so our staff embedded in these programs go out and they knock on doors, they walk the neighborhood, find those other cats and get them sterilized, vaccinated and returned as well in sort of a preemptive fashion. The assumption being it's quite likely at some point in the future, those cats also would have been brought to the shelter, maybe not before having more kittens and adding to the population of community cats in that area. You know, if you talk to Anybody who's worked the intake desk at a shelter, especially a large shelter, for any length of time, they can likely tell you where the kittens are coming from, right down to individuals who bring in litters annually. And so in some ways, you know, I think the whole red flag cat model that Brian honed in on, like so many really good ideas, it seems utterly obvious in retrospect. And yet this was information we were not capitalizing on. Where are these other cats who are likely to be headed to the shelter and likely to be intact and breeding? Let's take advantage of that, again, using the one intake as a red flag, as it were. So again, we compiled all this data from six of these CCPs across the country, and the findings are really compelling. Specifically, Best Friends is in particular interested in reducing the animals dying in shelters across the country. So some of the metrics we're most interested in, of course, would be uh, reductions in euthanasia, reductions in intake. And what we saw was, again, this is a across the six programs, median decrease of 83% in feline euthanasia and a median reduction of 32% in feline intake. Pretty impressive numbers. And I think one of the most impressive, when you drill down a little bit further into the data, you find what I think is is maybe the most compelling is the reduction in kittens eight weeks of age or under. We were only able to really look at the data from four of the six programs because we didn't have the kind of granular data we needed from the other two. But across those four, we saw a median reduction of 41% in kitten intake. And of course, the reason that I find that the most compelling is it suggests that you're actually having an impact on the breeding population in the community through these targeted efforts. So very, very exciting uh, results and new insofar as the size. Again, we're talking nearly 73,000 cats across these six three-year programs. Not hardly new in that there's definitely published data from other programs, similar programs that show similar results. So this adds to the body of knowledge telling us that, especially by integrating these two, there's a real benefit to the shelters, obviously to the cats, to the communities. So it's very, very exciting to see this work be published. It's phenomenal. And I just want to take a little quick step going back to some of the comments that you were talking about. You use the word targeted and then you use return to field. And 
I think that those might have two different definitions around them. And I didn't know if you had any thoughts or comments about whether or not with the increase of return to fields movement, are we moving away from targeted efforts or are the targeted efforts still out there? We definitely see it comes out in the data, but also anecdotally, my colleagues who spend their time in the trenches, we see considerable benefits of targeting rather than simply a return to field program. And in in particular, we have had a couple instances where communities have applied for one of these programs. And as you can imagine, you know, we're talking a three-year program, best friends comes in, we embed staff, we buy one or two vans. I mean, there's a considerable investment. So the competition for these programs is pretty stiff. And we see communities apply at times, communities already doing return to field, but they're unable to really get a handle on kitten intake to their shelter because they're not doing the targeting piece of it. So uh, again, there's very compelling evidence to say you definitely want to be doing the targeting. And again, it's we're seeing it. It's been published elsewhere very, very important. And and again, you know, having had Brian on the show, that's something he really emphasizes. And in a lot of ways, it's not so different than what's been recommended for many years. Just looking at the community-based TNR, of course, you want to get as many cats in every colony sterilized as possible to have the greatest impact. And it's no different return to field. Again, the key when you integrate the two together is you're using that one cat, two cats coming into the shelter as information, as a clue to where the cats and kittens are. And that's how you can do your targeting. Can you list out the six communities that you had a CCP program in? And were there any geographical issues, like one being in a colder climate than another or anything like that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, The first programs were in Albuquerque and and San Antonio, and then we uh, moved over to Philadelphia and Baltimore, and then we had Columbus, Georgia in there, and uh, Pima County, Arizona, which is where Tucson is located. So we got a pretty good mix. There's a few, obviously, in there from the, you know, southwest part of the country, but then, again, Philadelphia and Baltimore, where it's, it's much colder. And for the most part, the trends we saw across the board held up to varying degrees in each of the programs. And of course, it's also a little difficult to tease out any geographical differences because certainly we were learning as we were going. Albuquerque and San Antonio were first. And, you know, by the time we got to Tucson, which arguably is geographically most similar, but it was the last of those six. And so a lot had already been learned. As I say, the trends generally held up, the exception being actually San Antonio I mentioned the the intake went down considerably across the board. Year two in San Antonio, intake actually increased, and it's complete anomaly. I've got a chart of that actually in the paper, and all the other five drop off considerably, and San Antonio's the sole uh, line going in the other direction, and then tapers downward. But talking to the folks involved, my colleagues who were actually involved at the time, The only explanation we could come up with, because virtually no other programming was changing, 
it wasn't as if, as you and, and probably a number of listeners are aware, there's programs now kind of coming online around the country, often called Safe at Home, where, for example, if you called a shelter and said, I've got some little kittens under my deck in my backyard, whatever, in some cases, if you will just keep them until they can be weaned, if you will look after them until they can be brought into the shelter after they've been weaned, they'll bring you a kit, provide you all sorts of resources. None of that was available at the time of these programs. So that doesn't seem to explain things. What we're told is once the community found out about the program and learned that a trip to the shelter was no longer a one-way trip for these free-roaming cats, they sort of came out in droves. Folks who would not would never have called the shelter in the past were calling the shelter. Again, that was the only explanation we were able to really nail down to explain that trend. But again, even in San Antonio, the numbers dropped off after the second year. I've seen in some communities a little bit of an uptick, and a a lot of it has to do with, I find, if there's just even a little bit adjusting in your outreach and your community gets a sense of different type of messaging, usually for the better, but they're like, oh, you're here for a community resource. We can utilize you and not really worry. And so I think that can happen. There can be an uptick when you first start a community cat program, but then you'll start declining. Your numbers will start going down quite a bit, very, very quickly. It's interesting until you mentioned this, it, it, it occurs to me only now that we're, when we're talking, in some ways it sort of tracks with on the much, much smaller scale at the colony level. And again, personal experience suggests that this is the case, but also a number of published papers indicate that year one or year two, the numbers in a particular colony may increase. Again, as things stabilize, there's food being provided and the numbers go up and then they dip down after, say, the second year. And so it's it's just an interesting parallel and illustrates the point that you need the right time horizon to look at these sorts of programs. If you only looked after year one, you might get a very different and misleading impression. It's sort of like investing. You don't want to like look at your investments in a 12 month period, especially if it was like 08, 09 or something like that. (laughs) You know, you want to look at it at a much longer time frame, three to five years, 10 years, you know, that kind of window is a much better window. Trying to catch a pregnant cat in time? Are you after that last cat who isn't fixed in your 10-cat colony? Got a wily feral who just won't go into a box trap no matter how much you spend on roasted chicken? How about catching a litter of kittens all at once with their mom? All these tough trapping situations and more can be solved if you know how to use a drop trap. Join Neighborhood Cats, co-designers of the first mass-manufactured drop trap on the market as they demonstrate how to best use this trapper's best friend, the drop trap. A Trapper's Best Friend is a webinar presented by the Community Cats Podcast and Neighborhood Cats on Saturday, June 29th, 2019 from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. To sign up, go to communitycatspodcast.com. We'll see you there. Are you struggling to increase positive outcomes in your shelter? Are you overwhelmed with high stray intake and low owner reclaim? Do you wish you had solutions to your biggest problems? The Path Ahead provides in-person and remote consulting for animal welfare organizations. Let us help you to increase life-saving by engaging your community and maintaining the human-animal bond. The Path Ahead teaches proven best practices for humane, effective animal welfare, including community cat management, missing pet prevention and recovery, and progressive adoptions. By identifying and addressing outdated and unproductive practices, you can reduce intake and length of stay and keep animals in their loving homes where they belong. Leave the past behind and take the path ahead to success. Visit our website at www.animalwelfaresuccess.com. 
www.thepeterhouse.com. So in the show notes, Peter, we're going to really make sure that folks get access to this fantastic article with great results and excellent data so people can share this information, especially if they're making a presentation to their municipalities to be able to share how important and impactful a really good targeted TNR program, as well as return to field using those in concert or complementing one another. I think it's a great way to be able to present that out into the community. And I will certainly also add in there having a owned cat spay neuter component at very low cost or free will basically totally eliminate your kitten issues too. Absolutely. To the extent that this kind of programming can be integrated with other programming, and that could be, obviously, it varies by shelter where each shelter is and what they're able to bring online, but working cat programs, kit nurseries, and even seems a little bit like there's kind of a disconnect here, but we have heard from a number of shelters doing this sort of programming it frees up so much bandwidth that they can now maybe start thinking about play groups for dogs mm-hmm. because they've got the bandwidth. So the, the life-saving, those efforts, there's a spillover effect, not to mention the fact, again, if you're freeing up that sort of bandwidth, there's surely a positive impact on shelter staff. I mean, I joke sometime when I visit the shelter, though it's, it's not a joke, I said, you know, if you if you keep it up, you, you actually might be able to sit down for 15 minutes someday. We know they're typically overworked and stressed and it takes a toll in any number of ways. We hear from shelters, it's transformed, not just for cats, but transformed the way they think about their job. Because when you start something about so radically rethinking how things are done, you know, surrounding these unowned free roaming cats, it's like it cracks open the very premise of everything they do. And suddenly, it's all about, well, how can we save this one who comes through the door, dog, cat, you name it. And the shelter staff really rise to the challenge. It's really interesting to watch, watch a shelter to embrace this. We were also sort of chatting a little bit. What else have you been up to? You've mentioned you've had some conversations with some veterinary students. I didn't know if you'd like to expand a little bit on that. And then I didn't know if you wanted to share anything about the Best Friends Conference that's coming up this summer. Sure. One of the things that I, I most enjoy about my role with Best Friends is it gives me an opportunity to not only attend various conferences, but also to speak to veterinary students. And I've had the pleasure of doing that a couple times just in the maybe the last couple months. And it's really very exciting to see how well informed the veterinary students are on issues surrounding community cats, TNR, return to field, all of it. Very well informed, very engaged. And in a lot of cases, you know, I never quite know who the audience is going to be in terms of what have they been exposed to. And often the audience is varied. So you don't want to assume too much. And I often go in there and feel like almost like I gave a 101 level presentation and really they needed like a 400 level course because they're that on board and in the starting blocks and their 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 energy, their ambition. And there's lots of nodding heads in the room, again, almost as if, it's, OK, we, we're already there. We, we know this. What more could we be doing? And as I say, it's really exciting to think about it because I think those the sort of demographic shift that we're seeing leads to changes that are Mm non-linear. The sort of thing that in retrospect, it'll seem like it was overnight, as if someone flipped a switch. And all of a sudden, this is just a foregone conclusion. This is just how we do it. It's just just what's 
done. Yeah. As I say, it's, it's really, really very exciting. And you asked about the Best Friends Conference, which is sooner than probably I want to think about because I, there's preparation that I'm, I'm behind on. But uh, <laughs> the, the Best Friends National Conference is in Dallas. We haven't been in Dallas. It's in July in Dallas. So that's going to be very exciting and kind of in some ways, uh, I find it a little bit like my experience of, of speaking with the veterinary students. As you know, my my role with Best Friends is it's a very wonky policy, sciencey focus, which often means I'm hunkered down behind my laptop. I'm either reading or writing or both. And the conference gives me a way to get out there in the world and kind of get a sense of where are folks mm-hmm. on this issue? What are they experiencing in the trenches as they work in their communities, they work in their shelters? In a lot of ways, it really grounds me. And it's also for anybody who's ever been to the Best Friends Conference, they know it is a high energy event. Uh, before I worked for the organization, I used to go regularly. It was a relatively short drive from Phoenix to Las Vegas, where it was held for many years uh, in a row. And I would drive back from that conference sort of equal parts exhausted and invigorated. I mean, my head just buzzing with all these new ideas. I would tell people it was my annual booster shot. It was just great high energy. And the, the workshops are great. The contacts you make there. I mean, you know, because you, you go to conferences, there's a number of times you'll be attending a workshop or something. The presenters begin by wondering aloud, how did this ever get started? How did this paper about CCPs, what was the impetus for this? Oh, yeah, it was a conversation in the lunch line at a particular conference or just as likely, I suppose, over drinks in the hotel bar in the evening. Those organic relationships that develop at these conferences, good ideas, good programming, good relationships have begun as a result of these incidental meetings. So true. That's so true. I've formed quite a few great friendships and I've secured quite a few excellent grant opportunities just by going to a conference. So it is well worth it for me. Peter, if folks are interested in finding out more about the conference or reaching out to you for a question or anything, how would they find you? The best way to find out more about the conference is, well, two ways, I suppose. You can go to uh, bestfriends.org or you can just Google Best Friends National Conference and all the relevant registration information will pop up right away. Best way to find me is probably by way of email, peterw at bestfriends.org. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? I think this may not have come out so crisply while I was talking about the paper, but you mentioned it later in our conversation, the fact that return to field is really this enormous trend right now. Again, we've been at this a little while at Best Friends, integrating it with the targeted TNR. But for a lot of folks, it's brand new and it's kind of scary. And so we're looking at, in addition to publishing works like this, putting out more and more resources to explain the benefits to walk folks through the process. Again, our conference this year, in fact, has a full day, sort of a pre-conference a workshop devoted to community cat issues. And a big piece of that is return to field. And again, getting people comfortable with the idea, walking them through it, especially, and you know this probably better than I do, people's reluctance of returning the so-called friendlies. Mm -hmm. There's going to be lots of conversations around return to field. So that's definitely something for folks to, you know, keep an eye out. If it's not happening where you are, it's probably coming soon. 
Excellent. And I do think that that's a very hot topic. Return to field has a lot of subsections to it that you can really take a deeper dive. Something that you would think seems pretty simple actually has a lot of complexity to it. It's good that those questions are being brought up and discussed. So Peter, I want to thank you again for agreeing to be a guest on my show. And hopefully we'll have you on again. Maybe we won't wait two and a half years for the next show. We, we, we don't have to wait that long, <laughs> I promise. I'd love to be back anytime. Thanks for the opportunity. Join us June 21st through 23rd for a kitten-focused event presented by the National Kitten Coalition and the Community Cats Podcast. This three-day virtual gathering will feature presentations by experts on raising and saving kittens, setting up and managing kitten-centered shelter programs, and more. Early bird tickets are available now through April 30th for just $50, and after that, $75 tickets will be available through June 22nd. So don't wait. Sign up for the 2019 Online Kitten Conference.